All right, good to see everybody. I was about to walk up here and start and realized I'd forgotten the mic, so. Okay, so if there's anybody here who has not signed up, we would love for you to sign up using that QR code. And if you have a problem with that, we can also send you a link. And part of that's just so that we can send you the notes and any other information, like today we sent out a a note that we were having class because there was there were some questions by a few people about that. So anyway, so last week we talked about three different methods of Bible intake. We talked about hearing, reading, and study and about some ways that you could put that into practice over the past week. So anybody think about how they came into church this morning, how to prepare their hearts? Anybody think about adapting their Bible reading plan? Yes, and if anybody wants to share, you don't have to, but if anybody has some thought about that. Okay, you got it all all figured out. That's good. Well, I did think about, especially as I came into church this morning, so I got in here. I got to church. I was prepared on the way you know, listening to scripture, and then I got in here, and one of the toilets, the water was frozen, so I didn't have to fix the toilet, that's Jim, Jim's the master, but I was like, oh, I got to go get a sign, and I was rushing in, but I was still, came in, and was like, okay, settle down, you know, engage in the service, and so even if we prepare our hearts, sometimes we have to, like, get back in gear as best we can, so... Okay, let me pray for us, and then we will get started. Father, I do just um, tell you that we are so grateful to be able to come here and to think more about training our hearts to trust you, as Terry talked about this morning. God, I pray that you would just help us to switch gears and to engage and to hear whatever it is that you want each one of us individually to hear. We're so grateful that you take notice of us and that you are for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I prayed that, but did you hear what hear that Terry said that this morning? Will you train your heart to trust God? I loved that question because that's really part of that's really what we're trying to accomplish by engaging in the spiritual disciplines is to train our hearts to trust God. And it made me think about Proverbs 4:23, which says, "Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life." And then I was reading something this morning, so I'm going to use my phone to read this to you, but. And I've read it before, but I just loved it. He talks about how we have this remarkable capacity to direct our mind's attention to the things that we choose to direct it to. And he says, it's an amazing power that we have this. And he says, Are you, have you been neglecting this great weapon in the arsenal of your war against sin? The Bible calls us again and again to use this remarkable gift. And he talks about so many places in scripture where we are told to set our minds on things above or set our hearts on things above or even things like consider the ravens, consider the lilies. 
And then I love this part. He says, the mind is the window of the heart. If we let our minds constantly dwell on the dark, the heart will feel dark. But if we open the window of our mind to the light, the heart will feel light. Above all, this great capacity of our minds to focus and consider is meant for considering Jesus. Hebrews 12, so let's do this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so that's part of why we talk about we're not just trying, we are training. And so that is our goal here is to train. So we're going to talk, I'm going to talk about the two remaining methods of Bible intake. I'm going to talk about memorization and meditation and a little bit about application. And then Trace is going to come up and talk about worship. So memorization for the purpose of godliness. So there's our hand example from last week. So the Bible tells us that it's important to memorize scripture. And throughout the Bible, God's people are commanded to remember his word by storing his laws and promises in their hearts and minds. In Deuteronomy, God tells his people to lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So pretty much all the time, right? And then Hebrews 10.23 says... Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, which means we are to hold to the truth of the gospel in Scripture. So remembering and clinging to God's word involves an active plan to keep it at the forefront of your minds. You know, like we just talked about, choosing what your mind focuses on. And have you noticed we keep talking about a plan? Because it's really, intense, it's really critical for us to be intentional. And the plan can change but we wanna have a plan. And so, but before we talk about a plan and some tools, I want to point out to you some of the benefits of memorization, and there are many. So memorization helps us to fight sin. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up my word, I have stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Uh Uh-oh, my phone's talking to me and I don't even have Siri. So, sorry, let's back up. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. And that's pretty clear. And isn't that really all what we all want or should want to not sin against God and other people? And Trace mentioned Ephesians Ephesians 6 last week where Paul tells us to outfit ourselves for the battle against sin. And much of the spiritual armor he mentions is from Scripture, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so in order to be battle ready, we must take up scripture as both our offensive and our defensive weapons. And so a defensive posture would be looking up scriptures when you're struggling, which there's nothing wrong with that, but we don't want to only be on defense, right? We want to be on offense, which means having some ready in our minds to do battle when that comes up. Because if we store them up, In a moment of temptation or struggle, God's word can help us. And so another benefit of memorization is that it dilutes our love for worldliness. And so memorization helps us to use scripture as the plumb line. So that's the picture up there if you've never seen a plumb line. So it's the plumb line for how we should live in the world as we want to be faithful and pursue our goal of godliness. And do you know what a plumb line is? It's essentially to make sure that walls are straight or plumb. 
and it's a cord with a weight tied to the bottom of it, and when you hold it up, you can tell if the wall is straight or not, and I'm sure some of you understand that better than I do, but, but if a wall isn't straight, then the integrity of your whole house is at risk, right, Pam? Pam does real estate. She probably sees houses that walls aren't straight, and so you'll find plumb line used many times in the Bible, and God's word should be our plumb line, and one writer described it, and it's up there. I like that description. Scripture is the straight line by which we measure our crookedness. So listen to one writer talk about the impact memorizing Scripture had on her life. She said, as the weeks and months slipped by while memorizing Scripture, I noticed some changes. Television shows I once watched without thought began to seem crass and even shameful. Music with questionable lyrics became distasteful. Novels that I used to term salty or edgy found their way into my trash can. The more I studied God's word through memorization, the less I loved the things of the world. And she also said, keeping scripture in front of my mind revealed that I was taking pleasure in sin and worldly living. Scripture warmed my heart with conviction and helped me to walk away from things that did not aid my spiritual growth or holiness. So once again, the disciplines is a means of resistance against sin, which is one of the things that Trace talked about last week. So memorization also deepens our affections for Christ. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And if you read the River Daily Devotionals, you're going to see this verse at the very top of every day. And drawing near is something that we have to intentionally do to put ourselves in the path to encounter God. And so Memorization can help us to love God more, to understand him more, to catch a greater vision of what he wants for us. And you've heard it said before, your heart follows your investment. So invest in memorizing scripture and your heart's going to follow. Memorization also prepares us for witnessing and for counseling. So when we have God's word stored up in us, God can and will use the opportunities to speak truth to others. And that's going to be whether we're speaking to those who don't know Jesus or to our fellow believers who are struggling. And then, of course, memorization is also beneficial as a means of God's guidance for ourselves. It really is amazing how scripture can come to mind when you're trying to think about how to handle things or, or make decisions. And I love Psalm 119.24. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. So clearly, there are many benefits of memorizing scripture. And I read one time that Billy Graham said later in his life, and Billy lived a good long life, you know, testifying to God's goodness. But he said that he wished he had memorized more scripture when he was younger. Now, he didn't quit just because he got older. It just took him a little longer, and it was a little harder. But he kept at it because of the value of scripture memory. So it's never too late. And so if it's something that you haven't done or that you've kind of drifted away from, just get back into it because you're never going to be any younger than you are today, clearly, right? We're all going to be older tomorrow, Lord willing, if we're still around. So we talk about obstacles. So as you think about memorizing scripture, think about what are the obstacles that you encounter. Are they logistical? Are they motivational? Maybe you just don't have the right tool. So Dr. Whitney says that people sometimes view memorization as the equivalent of modern-day martyrdom. Anybody feel that way? Twist my arm, torture me. I don't know if I've seen that, but I have seen it in my small group, and I'm not looking at my member of my small group, not that she did it, but 
I have seen it in my small group when we talked about scripture memory. People kind of like, oh, you know, because it, maybe we think of past failures. Maybe we think about all the times we had to memorize speeches and historical facts and different things in school. But it's really common for people to think that they can't memorize scripture. But I love Dr. Whitney's example. He said, if you ask any, or if you told anyone that for the ne- you would pay them $1,000 for every scripture that they memorized in the next seven days, do you think people's perspective would change? There's definitely some motivation. And so our motivation should take bigger weight than $1,000, right, if we think about all of those benefits of scripture memory. So everybody can memorize. We memorize things all the time. Addresses, phone numbers, maybe not phone numbers as much with smartphones, but, you know, we memorize names. And it is true that scripture memory is harder for some than others, but it would be rare for it to be impossible for somebody. So not to put guilt on you, but just to encourage you. So let me talk about some tools and maybe some ways that we can memorize. So the first one, if you look on navigators.org, they have four steps to memorizing scripture. And I'll just give you the highlights, but they have more details on there. If this appeals to you, you can go look out there. So first, pick an area of gospel truth that you're motivated to understand deeply, because clearly if it's something that's pressing you know, on our heart, we're going to be more motivated to memorize the scripture. And then dig into the content. You know, Look a little more deeply, do a little study. Memorize in bite-sized pieces. If, you, if you're memorizing a verse or a chapter or five verses, it's really hard for most people to do it from beginning to end. So start small and then add on to it. And then review with friends or in small group, which is what we're doing. We're motivating one another to review in small group. And we gave people the option. Um, we worked on 1 John 1, 5 when we were talking about that in church. And so we let people pick whatever version they wanted to. We also let them pick how much of it. Some are memorizing verses 5 through 10. Some are starting with um, 1 John 1, 5. So, okay, a few other ways to memorize. Write it out. Who writes their scripture memory out? I do that a lot. I've been picking, there's an app that I've been also using too, which I'll talk about in a minute. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with going old school. You write it out on index cards. I have a friend who loves post-it notes and she has like, you open her kitchen cabinet door and there's, it's covered with post-it notes of scripture. So she's very diligent in scripture memory. But there's something in the brain about physically writing out something for some people. And so I put mine on my mirror, I put them in the car, or whatnot. And then another option would to be type them out, copy and paste. And I've heard about somebody who memorizes chapters by printing them out. She makes multiple copies, gets those gallon-sized plastic bags, puts them in there to make them waterproof, puts them in the, the bathroom on the mirror, puts them on the, on the window in front of her kitchen sink and tapes them there, and so looks at them while she's doing other things. I heard about another person who has a notebook of them and carries them with her while she walks in the woods at her house. And I don't have woods at my house, and I'd probably trip if I were looking down, but, you know, that's, if that works for you, that's great. And so there's also a Bible memory app, and Maureen, do you still use that? 
Yeah. Well, years ago, I think it was when we started with Romans. Was that in 2017? I don't know. A long time ago, we were going through a series and we encouraged people in the church to use this app. And there was even a group where you could, people could optionally sign up and then you could see where they were at on scripture memory. So that could either be encouraging or discouraging or challenging, right? But you don't have to sign up on a group. But it's actually great because I picked it up again. And so I'm trying to use that one again. But what you do is um, you pick your scripture and then you can tap the first letter of each word and it'll tell you if you're wrong. In fact, it buzzes. It doesn't shock you, but it buzzes. (laughs) And then you can either record yourself. There's a way to make a drawing, which I haven't tried that one out. Have you tried that, Maureen? So, yeah. But there, there's a free version. There's also a pro version that's a one-time $10 fee. And so it's well worth it if this is something that would help you. And so that's another option. Um, journeywomen.org, they also have some really good resources, um, both for men and women. They, the gal who runs it, who is Hunter Belis, who is on the next item there, She is very diligent about scripture memory for herself and for her kids. And so she also has a kid's book called Read It, See It, Say It, Sing It. And so it's a way to help kids memorize scripture. And I think she uses it for herself too. So I got these, I got those books for my brother's grandkids this Christmas. So I'll have to check in and see how they like them. And then the Daily Grace Co., they have scripture memory cards for kids and adults and some other resources as well. So we just wanted to try and, you know, there's always tons of resources, but the ones that we're aware of and um, think have been helpful to some people, we just want to let you know about those. So I'm going to move right on to meditation. So meditation for the purpose of godliness. And so meditation is a way to help us retain what we have heard. And we talked about that reading is the exposure to Scripture, and then meditation is the absorption of Scripture. And we want to absorb because it's necessary for transformation. And so meditation helps us to grasp onto God's Word. And if you look at that drawing, it's a little bit different drawing. Meditation's the thumb, right? And that's intentional because if you tried to hold something with, without a thumb, you can do it, but it's a little bit harder. And so meditation is really key to all of these other methods of um, Bible intake. So, and we always want to give you the scripture behind what the Bible says about all of these disciplines. And so Joshua 1.8, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And then Psalm 1 again, remember Trace said that's part of the um, thinking behind behind our logo here that, you know, we want to meditate and be like a tree that yields fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. And then finally, Philippians 4, 8, and 9, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard in me, or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So, but what is Christian meditation? If you've not heard it before, maybe many of you have, but, you know, what we more often hear about in culture is worldly meditation, a different type of meditation. So Christian meditation is very different. 
It's prayerful reflection. It's a deep thinking, whatever that looks like for you, because we're all different, and that's going to be different depending on the person. It's filling your mind with God's word. It requires mental activity, and it's focusing on the truths revealed in Scripture, or it's focusing on life with, from a scriptural perspective with the goal of understanding application and prayer. And so meditation combined with prayer and action will lead to change. So I love looking um, at the original meanings of words. And in Hebrew, the word meditate means mumbling to oneself to gain understanding. So we're going around mumbling. So I'm going to look to see some of you doing this next week as mumbling. Just kidding. So the blessing and growth from regular examination of God's word comes from turning it over and over in our minds. And so I have a question for you, and you don't have to answer out loud, but you sure can if you want to. But do you remember what you read in the Bible this morning or yesterday or earlier this week? Many of us might say no or let me think about it. But if you meditate on something and then also look for a way to apply it, it can help you to retain it. And if we don't give ourselves time to process, it's not going to affect our lives. And so, as I said, this is different from worldly meditation because worldly meditation is more about emptying your mind, creating your own reality, and things that are essentially pretty much opposite of what we are trying to do here. We're trying to fill our mind. Like I talked about what I read to you from that devotional this morning, we have the capacity to set our minds you know, set our hearts and minds on things above because our goal is godliness. So are there any tea drinkers here? Okay. So this will give you a visual of what meditation looks like. And I'm pretty visual, so this, this example helped me. So if you think about what happens when you steep a bag of tea, right? You put a tea bag in hot water. Well, what's that water look like? Well, you do it just for a minute, and it has this, you know, very light, just off-white color. But if you let it sit there and steep for a while, then it's going to turn to this dark, rich, colorful, flavorful tea. And so that's the whole goal with meditation, is that we let it sit there and we soak in it. And so then we begin to think about more things. We, we start to look at repetitions. We la- start to look at different meanings. And of course, clearly, they're all based on scripture. But that's the whole concept with meditation is letting it really absorb. And so meditation should actually be a part of our daily time with God. It doesn't mean that it has to be a long time, but it's more than just reading through a scripture to check a box, right? It's reading the scripture and thinking about it. And Whitney says, and I've got it up there for you to look at, if later in the day I can't recall what I meditated on earlier, I've not meditated deeply enough. And I know I've sufficiently meditated when I recall it at odd moments throughout the day. It's definitely a challenge, isn't it? But it's an encouragement too, because if we think about, the more we think about scripture, then the more we are going to be focusing on God, the more he can influence us, And so Whitney suggests that if necessary, we need to read less in order to meditate more. And so you may be trying to think, okay, wait, I just signed up to do this Bible in a year reading plan. How am I going to meditate? Well, part of that's just finding balance, right? I know some people who will do the, read the Bible in a year one year, and then the next year they'll 
they'll try to take a slower time and focus on things. And I'm not saying you have to do it year by year. You do it at whatever pace the Lord wants you to. And don't be a slave to the plan. You know, sometimes um, we are wired such that we're like, okay, I signed up to do this in a year. I've got, I've got seven days and I have 47 chapters left. You know, I guess that's not too bad. You could do that. But maybe you had um, 47 books of the Bible to do in seven days. But hey, if you've been meditating, that's awesome. So meditation, because we have dip, deeply reflected on scripture, results in eat obedience, which results in blessing. And so meditation is the missing link that we often fail to take seriously. And I encourage you, if you haven't, um, I think most everybody was here, but maybe you want to go back and listen again to what Trace le- said last week about blessing. Because we're not talking about earning God's favor, right? But God will bless us if we pursue these things. So I am going to um, talk about a few different ways to meditate on Scripture. And Dr. Whitney listed like, I can't remember, 12, 13. And I have a a one-sheet or one-page description of them that we can send out this week if you guys are interested, or you can read more in his book. But before we go to the meditation methods, I'm going to talk really briefly about application, because if you saw on that hand, and one of them, it was in the palm, but then when the hand was holding the, the book, it was right here, because all of these are to lead to application, right? It's not just information. It's information leading to transformation, So because the goal is not to just know about the Bible or do the disciplines, the goal is godliness. And we're going to repeat that over and over because we don't want to forget what the goal is. The goal is not to just do the disciplines, which those are good things, but there is a goal of godliness. And so the Bible tells us in many places and in many ways um, that we are expected to gain understanding and to apply the word. So James 1, and 25 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And so as we think about application, I really like this point from Dr. Whitney. He said we should expect to discover an application. And clearly some are going to be clearer than others, but we should be looking for it. We should be asking God to help us find whatever application he wants. And sometimes it's not going to come that minute, but, you know, we should ask God to reveal things to us. And then, of course, we have to work to understand the text. And there there are clearly some scriptures that are harder to understand than others. The Bible even says that. But Understanding the Bible isn't typically our primary problem with application. More often, it apply, the difficulty lies in knowing how to apply the clearly understood parts of God's word to everyday living. Did you catch that? I know, I know this is a lot of information, but understanding the Bible isn't typically our primary problem. More often, the difficulty lies in knowing how to apply the clearly understood parts of God's word to everyday living. And so meditate first in order to find application. And then ask application-oriented questions of the text. And Dr. Whitney gives some 
ideas of questions to ask. You don't have to ask all of these questions. You can, and it doesn't take a long time to ask those about the scripture, but I think as you get more and more practiced with this, you will learn which questions to ask. So there, there are things like, does this text reveal something I should believe about God, praise or thank or trust God for, pray about for myself or others, make a decision about, do for the sake of Christ, others, and myself. And then we also have a brochure, and I forgot to bring one in. It's just a little, um, little piece of paper that has four questions for understanding and four for application, and it's out in the foyer over here if you're interested in that. But, you know, here's my encouragement to you. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't overcomplicate and try to be looking for some huge application. Just ask God to reveal whatever it is that he wants to reveal to you from this scripture about what you should do, believe, value, think, all of those things. So, all right, I'm going to move on to meditation now. So I'm going to talk about just three methods. And for all of these methods, the starting point um, is that you choose a verse or a phrase. Like if you're reading, you choose a verse or a phrase that attracted your attention. And then you go from there with meditating. And so there's a really simple way to meditate. But it's simple, but it can really be profound. And some of you may be familiar with this already. But what you do is you read through a verse out loud, because it's interesting when we hear ourselves. And then each time, you emphasize a different word or phrase and watch new meanings develop. So, for example, I'm going to read um, John 2, 5 to you guys, and then I'm going to ask you if anything stood out to you, so just so you're ready. Okay, so whatever he says to you, do it. What thoughts does that provoke? Whatever he says to you, do it. Who is it that's telling me to do something, and what do I know about him? Whatever he says to you, do it. What has he just said? Am I listening? Did I hear what he said? Whatever he says to you, do it. Who's he talking to? He's talking to me. Whatever he says to you, do Whatever he says to you, do it. And so then you think again about those application questions. What did he say? What do I need to follow through on? And then whatever he says to you, do it. What is it that I'm supposed to do? Okay, so now's the test. Any thoughts on that? I know you haven't had a lot of time to think, but did it seem different to you when we emphasize different words? Yeah? Okay. Moving on. So the second method is Philippians 4, 8 questions. And yeah, I love these. So you meditate on an event, an experience, a thing, an encounter, especially a story or event or verse of scripture. And you start with a verse or you can start with your life. But if you start with your life, you're trying to understand your life and the concept of what God's word said. Does that make sense? Okay. So you can ask yourself, what is, what is true about this? You're thinking about a situation that just happened. 
We'll start with the situation, but you can see how this would apply to scripture. What is true about it? And then you might go, what is not true about it? And part of that is you're trying to approach this from a biblical framework, right? And then you think, what is, I learned it as noble, but it's honorable in some translations. So what is honorable or noble about that? Well, if I'm struggling with, you know, stinking thinking, then probably nothing. But it's not enough to just go, well, there's nothing noble about what I'm thinking. I should be thinking, okay, then what is noble in this situation? What is honorable in this situation? What does God say about this? And so the same thing for what is right about it, what is pure about it, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. So there's a whole list there. And I love that the Holy Spirit gave me this verse many years ago when I was a young believer and when I was, I guess I hadn't realized yet that I could actually discipline my mind to think about things. God was working with me on that, and one time this scripture came to mind, and so I can't tell you how many times a day I would go, is that true? No. Is that noble? No. Is that right? No. And so on. And then I would go, okay, then what is true? What is right? And all of those things. So I love this particular one. Um, And maybe if you're just struggling, you're discouraged or disheartened, it's helpful to go through this list. At least I find so. All right, the last one takes a little bit longer to explain, explain. And we actually did this in a women's rally a number of years ago. So who fam- is familiar with meditation mapping? How m- oh, a few of you? Okay. Oh, yes, and they did it in challenge too, didn't they? I think Allison did that. But um, some love this, some hate it. Hate, hate might be a strong word, but some struggle with it. But um, it's not a different way to think. It's just a different way to write down your thoughts. It's very graphical and visual because pictures create memories. And we have a, the capacity for recognition of pictures is almost limitless. So did any of you remember some of the pictures I had on the slides before? Anybody? What were they? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Teacup, yeah. So see there, right there. You may not remember the exact quote, but you remember the visual image. And so that's kind of the idea with meditation mapping because pictures create memories. And so it's a great way to study, especially if you tend to be more visual or graphically oriented. And I sometimes will do this more often than others. It's been a little bit of a season before I've done, since I've done much of this, but there have been times where it really helps me process. And so You know, it's linear trains of thought flowing from scripture represented in words and pictures. And so creative people tend to love this type of meditation, but even if you're not creative, I'd encourage you to try it. So we're going to look at a couple of visual examples, and then I'm going to explain it. So you want to put the first one up there, Aaron? Okay. All right, you want to move on to the next one, and we'll come back. All right. Okay, and then the next slide. And don't worry, we're going to send you all this. And actually, that's probably really hard for you guys to see, isn't it? But we can send that out to you. So the idea is that you put the verse, the phrase, the word, or the topic in the middle of the page. And if, it, and if the verse is conducive to it, then you put it in a picture form. And then you 
just allow insights and ideas and thoughts to come quickly and freely. And sometimes for us overthinkers, that's a little hard, but, but work to not overthink it, right? If you think of a particular idea, just write it down. It's not a test. Use keywords to represent your ideas. And I'm just giving you this, and we'll come back and look at it, so don't worry. Um, you're going to connect your keywords to the central focus with lines. You probably already saw some of those lines. Use as few words as possible, right? You're not writing a sentence. You're just writing some keywords. And I recommend printing it out so that you can um, more easily read it. And you use color for emphasis and recall. And then use symbols and pictures in addition to words. And you don't have to be an artist to do that. So the two that I put up there, um, they were done by some folks for a class, and so they put more time into it. So it's probably going to look a little differently than if you're just trying to do a quick one in the morning, unless you're an artist, which I am not. So, but in scripture mapping, it stays tethered to the scripture, to the truth. It isn't free association, because the, there is an anchor holding us to the word, right? Okay, so let's go back to that first, first one, Aaron. And... I don't know, if you have good eyesight, you might be able to read the scripture under there, but I'll read it to you. It's 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. It says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. And so if you see that... Um, you see those different words from that verse, right? So the, the bottom letter, layer of foundation, it looks like bricks there, is faith. And then you've got, um, I can't actually see what those are, goodness and knowledge on this second one. And so all of those keywords are in there. And you notice how it's not, it's just keywords. And so um, it's using different color. And so if you look at the faith, it's kind of a tealish blue and then... If you look on the right side, that first branch over there is the same color, right? So it's associating it to it. And sadly, I can't see that from here. <laughs> and I didn't write down the words. But if you see that, um, so it says faith, and then it says mustard seed. So clearly the person who did that is thinking about the scripture, faith as small as a mustard seed. And then there's prayer, and then Hebrews 12 and then she went through each one of these, and so green is godliness, and so righteousness, and then spiritual disciplines. There you go. That was a good tie-in for us. But do you see the idea there that it's very visual, it's very color-oriented, and it's a way to really, like, make that tea deeper and more flavorful? So each of the branches is in a different color to add visual impact. And then as you work your way away from the core, you're fleshing out the details, as you saw that she was doing. And so we're really trying to let the Holy Spirit bring up issues or thoughts or questions, clarifications. Um, we're not, this is not a time where we're doing a lot of study. We're just trying to think about different things in Scripture and what it brings to mind, whether it's another Scripture or just a challenge that we are encountering. And so then when you exhaust a branch, you go back, go on to the next one. So that one didn't really have any symbols, which is totally okay. You don't have to have symbols in it. But, okay, do you want to go on? I think I want you to go on to... Slide 28, maybe? 
if I wrote down the right slide number? Okay, what do you remember? Anybody remember anything from that? What was the verse? Yep, that's right. Now, maybe you might remember something if, if we could have drawn a mustard seed on there, but you might have just thought it was a little yellow dot or something. So, but you notice there was a verse, there were colors, there were images and words. And so we're going to look at the second example, which has a few more images in there. Okay, so this one is based on Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so I'm going to have to go over here and, and read. So what is this person lying on? Altar. An altar, right? So do you see the connection there to living sacrifice? And so... So then there is a line up here. I should have a little ladder or a pointer. Um, so there is a line up there that says body, mind, thoughts, feelings. And so the whole idea is she's thinking, I'm going to offer my body as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? What does that mean? You know, it's, it's everything about me. It's my mind, my thoughts, my dreams, my vision. Um, it's all my heart. And then you come over here. Okay, so then you have worship, right? Because that's part of what the scripture says. And what this person wrote down was worship is laughter, pleasing God. It's willingness, it's submission, it's choice, it's all of these things. And so you get the idea a little bit. So do you want to go back to that screen so what did you notice there? And I know I'm kind of asking you to do this quickly. Anybody remember what the verse was? Yep. Which was about? Yes. So what, do you, what pictures do you remember from that? Yes, sacrifice what? Yes, that's right. Yep. Yes, heart. Yes. That's right. And so some of them are even more visual, and it's going to depend on the verse, you know, how many more symbols and different things that you can put on there. But even in those that don't have a lot of different symbols, you can see that you remember some of the colors, you remember some of the words, you remember some of the images. And so imagine if you are the one who did this, how much more likely you are to be able to remember some of that. And so that's a quick survey of three of the methods of me meditation mapping. If we'd had more time, I would have um, brought colored pencils and paper and had you all practice on one, but we didn't have time to do that today. So I want to remind you of the benefits of meditation mapping. So it will help you concentrate on scripture. It's going to preserve your insights um, and your insights on scripture because it is very easy, right, to forget what we just thought of, or at least it is for me. It helps cultivate holy imagination, you know, 
and it helps us see the big picture without losing the details because sometimes we're big picture and sometimes we're detail. And so this is gonna try and combine both of them. And it's gonna try and help you to create memories, visual memories. And so even if it doesn't appeal to you, some of it will, but even if it doesn't appeal to you, I encourage you to try it. You know, and we can give you some scriptures that are simpler to try with if you, if you want suggestions. And so, you know, the goal of meditation, all of these methods is to think deeply, to retain, apply, and ask questions. And so for how you can put this into practice this coming week, you know, if you're not already memorizing, start, try starting a verse or a passage. And you can try a different method. If you have a method that works for you, then that's awesome. If you're already doing that, that's great. But, you know, think about trying a different method to memorize. Think about looking up some of those um, resources that we put up there. And then meditation. I'd encourage you to try one of these or try more than one. And then ultimately, all of this is to search for application for the purpose of godliness. All right. Thank you. Trace, you're up. Oh, let me turn off. All right. Well, I just want to encourage you. I know we're throwing a lot of information at you and a lot of different methods you can try and that kind of thing. Brenda and I were in the kitchen um, here at River this week between things we were working on, chatting, and uh, we both agreed that teaching this class has challenged us to think about, man, are we practicing these things we're, we're teaching? So don't feel like, man, they've got it figured out and I'm way behind the game. There's all these things I need to be doing. Uh, we've been challenged by this as well. And I come to teach assuming that there's going to be a lot of this stuff that's just not the right time for you to think about applying this. I'm hopeful that there's a few things that you'll take from all these classes together to start applying. So if, if you feel overwhelmed, just try to focus down on you know one or two things maybe that you're going to take from the class and start applying consistently. So we're going to shift gears. We're going to start talking about the spiritual discipline of worship. We're going to spend the rest of the afternoon talking about that. And I want to start with a, a definition. So Donald Whitney gives this simple definition of worship. He says, worship is focusing on and responding to God. Worship is focusing on and responding to God. And he notes in his book how our modern English word for worship descends from the old English word we're sipe. So we're sipe was the original word in the old English. At one point it became worth-ship. And now in our modern English form it's worship. And so if you look at the historical etymology of the word, how the word developed over time, you can see that it clearly points to this act of ascribing proper worth to someone or ascribing proper worth to some thing. And here we're clearly talking about ascribing proper worth to God. We're talking about approaching and addressing him as he is worthy. That is the act of worship. Now, one thing I want you to see about the definition is that it's broader than we probably conceive of worship when we talk about it with one another uh, on a daily basis. When we think about worship, we're probably tempted to just imagine what we did in here a few hours ago. We gathered together, we sang songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, and that is certainly one expression of worship. But the spiritual discipline of worship that we're talking about this afternoon is much broader than mere mu musical praise. In fact, when the spiritual disciplines are practiced correctly, all of them, they should all lead us to the place of worship. 
They should all lead us to the place of focusing on and responding to God. So worship can stand alone uh, as a spiritual discipline. For example, what we did this morning, we came, we sang songs and hymns and spiritual songs. That was worship. Worship stood alone as a spiritual discipline. But it often exists in reciprocity with the other spiritual disciplines that we're talking about. So Brenda just finished talking about Bible intake. The goal is that Bible intake leads us to the place of worship. The goal is that prayer leads us to the place of worship, that fasting leads us to the place of worship, to a place where we're focusing on and responding to God. And so worship can be understood as both an end and a means. Donald Whitney says, the worship of God is an end in itself because to worship, as we've defined it, is to focus on and respond to God. But worship is also a means in the sense that it is a means to godliness. The more we truly worship God, the more through and by means of worship we become like him. So there's your very simple working definition of worship. Worship is to focus on and respond to God. So now I'm going to spend some time talking about the nature of worship. And I'm going to give you uh, the nature of worship in some contrasting pairs. So the first thing I want us to think about is worship as being public and private. Worship is public and private. One of the unique aspects of the spiritual discipline of worship is that it can be practiced and should be practiced both publicly and privately. Now, there are certain spiritual disciplines. You think about the discipline of solitude that can only be practiced privately. You cannot practice solitude with other people. And there are certain uh, spiritual disciplines that can only be practiced publicly. So the discipline of fellowship, the discipline of confession. You cannot have fellowship if you're by yourself. You can't confess unless there's someone there to confess to. So you have certain disciplines that are only private, certain disciplines that are only public, and then you have some disciplines that are both private and public. Worship is one of those disciplines. It's both private and public. So let's talk about worship as a private discipline. Worship is practiced privately anytime we focus on and respond to God while we're alone. So if you're at home, you get up out of bed, you're by yourself having your quiet time, you're offering personal prayers of adoration to God, you're practicing worship privately. When you're driving to work, if you're singing hymns and songs in your car, you're practicing worship privately. If you go on a walk through the park and you thank God for the beauty that's displayed in his creation, you're worshiping God privately. Those are just a few examples of what private worship looks like. And this private worship is prescriptive for followers of Christ. Worship is not just to be restricted to the Sunday morning assembly of believers. Worship is to permeate every sphere of our lives throughout the week. So Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice when? Always. Pray when? Without ceasing. Give thanks when? In all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, Do it all for the glory of God. The author of Hebrews writes, Through him, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And John says, I think it's interesting here to make this connection, John says that that's exactly what's happening in heaven right now. What's happening in heaven right now is that the spiritual beings are gathered around the throne and day and night they never cease to sing Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So see how this comes full circle. What did Jesus tell us to pray? 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So worship is happening all the time in heaven. And the more that worship happens all the time in our lives, the more that Christ's kingdom is coming and God's will is being done in us and through us. And we at River call this the single story life. You've probably heard us talk about this, but it can be tempting to think of life in kind of two stories. We have this this upper story where we do the Christian stuff. We come to church on Sunday morning. We go to small groups. We have our quiet time in in the morning. And then we have this other floor of life that's everything else. Work, parenting, uh, living in our neighborhood, doing the dishes, all of these kinds of things. But that's really not the biblical understanding of worship. Worship is something that's permeate every part of our lives. It's to be a persistent, private discipline that's increasing in our daily lives. So the fact that we should be worshiping privately and persistently doesn't mean that public worship is insignificant or that's unimportant. In fact, Scripture teaches quite the opposite. Acts 2, as you read about the first church right after Pentecost, it tells us that day by day they were gathering together to hear the apostolic teaching, to have fellowship, to pray, to share possessions, to offer praise to God, to evangelize. And we don't need to take everything there prescriptively and say that this is exactly what the church ought to be doing today, but we see the principle of consistently meeting together to worship. The author of Hebrews reinforces this. He says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Paul writes to the church at Colossae. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you. That's a plural you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the spiritual discipline of worship, when we practice it rightly, will always lead to public expressions of worship in the local church. The idea that you can rightly and fully worship God without participation in the local church is just a flawed and unbiblical idea. Worship is both public and it's private. Second aspect of worship's nature that I want us to think about is that worship can be initiated by a revelation that is both general and particular. We'll talk about that. Both general revelation and particular revelation can lead us into worship. So let's talk about general revelation. General revelation is God's communication of himself to all persons at all times and in all places. God's self-manifestation through nature, history, and the inner being of the human person. So it's revelation that's accessible to all people at all times, but it's less particular than the special revelation that God has given us in his word. So in Romans 1, Paul argues that, the, that what can be known about God is plain to all people. He's made it known to them, even unbelievers, because God has shown it to them. He says, the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So the psalmist says the same thing back in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. So we, as followers of Christ, 
can be rightly and legitimately moved to worship God by observing his activity in creating and sustaining the universe. You and I can walk outside at night. This, occasionally this will happen to me. I take my trash out on Monday nights and every once in a while the sky is clear and the moon is full. And I look up at the moon and I just say, God, you are great. Right? That's responding to God in worship as a result of general revelation. We can study the complexity of the human body and wonder at how God in his majesty created us so complexly. We can sit through a thunderstorm and consider God's power and his might. So we can rightly exercise the spiritual discipline of worship in, the, in response to God's general revelation of himself which was given to all persons at all times in all places. We can broadly and generally worship him for things like his power and transcendence. Yet, while a Christian can rightly exercise the spiritual discipline of worship to God's, in response to God's general revelation, we can't fully exercise that same spiritual discipline apart from God's particular revelation. Now, here's what I mean by particular revelation. God's particular revelation is God's manifestation of himself to particular persons at definite times and places, enabling those persons to enter into a redemptive relationship with himself. So for us today, God's particular revelation is right here. It's encapsulated in the Old and New Testament. And this is our source of worship. Most often, it comes from this, our particular revelation from God. So Donald Whitney says, All worship of God, public, family, and private worship should be based upon and include much of the Bible. The Bible reveals God to us so that we may focus on him, and to the extent we focus on him, we will worship him. So Brenda has just given you lots of ideas about how to practice Bible intake, and that's the foundational discipline. We should understand Bible intake as the foundational discipline. It's God's, it's the seedbed for worship. It's reading, meditating, and memorizing scripture that fuels private worship. So when you and I want to worship privately, most often that's going to come out of considering what God's word says privately. And the same thing on Sunday mornings. When we come together to worship publicly, it is the word of God which should fuel that worship. So by God's particular revelation, we're given the privilege and the responsibility to worship him, not just in broad, general ways, but in particular and specific ways. So we can pick up the Bible, and we can read through Micah, and we can worship God for his holiness as he's revealed it to us. We can read John 3.16, and we can worship God because of his sacrificial love that he's shown us in Christ Jesus, which we wouldn't know about unless he'd revealed it to us. We can read Romans 8.38 and praise God for his goodness and omnipotence in preserving the saints. You see how that's different. We have particular things to worship God for when we consider his particular revelation. So let's talk about the third aspect of worship's nature. So we talked about uh, general and particular revelation, how those both can lead us to worship. Now let's talk about the inward and outward nature of worship. In Matthew 15, the Jewish religious leaders, who were often scorned by Jesus because of their vanity, their external shows of worship, approached Jesus and they questioned him about why his disciples had broken the man-made Jewish religious tradition of washing hands before eating. And Jesus condemns them, and he uses Isaiah to condemn them. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So God, through the mouth of Isaiah and then through Jesus, condemns those who offer praise outwardly, but inwardly are far from him. So we see that worship, done rightly, is both inward and outward. Whitney says, worship includes words and actions, but it goes beyond them to focus on the mind and the heart. Worship is the God-centered focus and response of the soul. It is being preoccupied with God. In John chapter 4, Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So the Samaritan woman had asked him, where should I worship? Where is proper worship offered to God? Should we be worshiping God on this mountain or on that mountain, in this temple or that temple? And Jesus responds by saying that in the new covenant of his blood, the external position of worship is superseded by the internal position. It's not important that we worship in this temple or that temple, on this mountain or that mountain. It's important that we worship in spirit and in truth wherever we do it. And so that becomes a framework by which we evaluate our worship today. We, we ought to ask the question, first, are we worshiping God in truth? Is scripture at the center of our worship? Are we being guided and directed by biblical truths? by biblical expressions of worship, or are we being guided by our feelings, our flesh, the spirit of the age? And then after we answered that question, are we worshiping God in truth? We can't be finished there. We need to ask the question, are we worshiping God in spirit? Are we inviting the spirit of God to be present here with us and to shape us? Have we gone belly up before God in our hearts? Have we asked God to empty us of ourselves, to fill us with his presence and with his Holy Spirit? I think that's important whether we're seeking private or public worship. All right, are we interested in evoking emotions and calling them movements of the Spirit? Or maybe more common in the Baptist world, are we quenching the Spirit in the name of orderliness? We don't want to be caught doing that either. We want to invite the Spirit to move as we seek God through the truth. So I guess what I want you to see here is we can't see these as opposing things. We can't see worshiping God in truth or worshiping God in the Spirit as being opposing ideas. It's not like we choose one or the other. Jesus says Spirit and truth, not Spirit or truth. And I think it's interesting that three times in John's Gospel, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. He is the spirit of truth. We worship in the spirit and truth. So we can't view those two things as as a dichotomy, but as a harmony. But they function together. So last week I mentioned Richard Foster. He wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. I told you he's more charismatic in his theology. So you would think he's going to kind of push back against this this idea of structured disciplines, of forms, right? Maybe just kind of willy-nilly follow the spirit. But he doesn't. Listen to what he says about structure about forms about worshiping truth and spirit 
He says, forms and rituals do not produce worship, nor does the disuse of forms and rituals. So just because we have forms and rituals doesn't mean we're worshiping. But just because we've said, ah, we're, we're going to get rid of forms and rituals, those are bad, doesn't mean you're worshiping either, right? Forms and rituals are often a means by which we get to the place of worship. So I think that's important to keep that in mind too as we th- think about, you know, getting through your Bible reading plan for the day. And getting through your Bible reading for, plan for the day, checking it off the list, doesn't mean you actually worshiped. Praying through your prayer list in the morning doesn't mean you actually worshiped. Right? Those forms, they're disciplines, they're helpful, they're even necessary if we want to grow in godliness, but they do not themselves produce worship. True worship only happens when these external forms lead our hearts to focus on and respond to God in spirit and truth. Fourth aspect of worship's nature. Worship is discipline and devotion. So last week I talked about the nature of the disciplines and I talked about how we can have a disordered view of discipline and devotion. We can wrongly believe that our devotion ought to always drive our discipline. And we can then come to the conclusion that when we're excited about seeking God, we do it and it's just kind of sort of magical and effortless. But that when we're not excited about seeking God, we don't do it because that would be to put discipline before devotion and somehow that's wrong. But I think this can be especially true when it comes to the spiritual discipline of worship. Worship, often for many of us, is connected to emotions. If we put devotion before discipline, when it comes to worship, here are some things I think we'll start to, to think about worship. We'll start thinking, well, I can't sing today. I can't worship today because I don't feel worshipful. I don't feel happy. Or I, I didn't connect with worship. What does that mean? It didn't create emotions for me? Or that church has good worship? Or that church has bad worship? Now you might be right, maybe, but, but what are the criteria you're measuring with? Is it emotion or, or is it something else? So it can be easy to make worship into this thing that serves us. Right? I want worship to be this thing that serves me by making me feel good about God. But worship exists for a different purpose. I would say two things about this. Scripture sets forth worship as a discipline to be practiced regardless of emotion. So this past semester at Christian Challenge, we spent a few weeks talking about Habakkuk in the Old Testament. So Habakkuk was a prophet in the years that were immediately preceding the southern kingdom of Judah's fall at the hands of the Babylonians. And Habakkuk was given the unfortunate job of telling his people that the Babylonians were coming, that they were going to destroy Jerusalem and they were going to be carried off captive. And Habakkuk himself was going to be the victim of his own prophecy. He was going with them. And yet, knowing full well the suffering that he and the people of Judah were going to face as a result of God's just wrath against their sin, he makes this famous confession. You'll probably recognize it when I read it. It's the most famous confession in the book of Habakkuk. He says this in chapter 3, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, 
Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes me like the deers. He makes me tread on high places. And then there's this concluding note at the end of the book. It says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. So the book of Habakkuk emphatically teaches us that worship is a discipline to be practiced regardless of emotion. Through every circumstance of life, though life may appear dry and dead, dark and destitute, Habakkuk chooses to continue to rejoice in the Lord. Though he may no longer draw strength from the fig or the fruit, the crop or the cattle, Habakkuk will draw strength from the Lord by worshiping anyway. And the fact that these lyrics, we get that last note there, to the choir master with stringed instruments, infers that they were to be used as a corporate worship song. Israel was to sing this together in the face of what was coming. In the face of fear and suffering and heartache, they were going to worship while they waited, God, waited for God to keep his promises. So Habakkuk's worship wasn't magical. It wasn't effortless. He didn't feel happy. Right before that famous quote, he says his, his legs are weak. He's, his knees tremble with fear as he thinks about what's coming. He didn't have a cool environment. The lyrics weren't necessarily comforting or affirming. And yet he sang. And I think it was one of the most profound songs you find in all the scriptures. He disciplined himself to worship. Whitney says, we should not stop engaging in the forms of worship, even though we don't have the feelings of worship. There are some things in which we must persevere, even when we don't feel like it, just because it's the right thing to do. He says, breakthrough in restoring the joy and freedom of worship will most likely happen in the context of worship. So we can't stop worshiping. We can't just listen to our emotions when it comes to worship. But I would say this. We can't just listen to our emotions, but I would say that we cannot neglect our emotions either. I think that's another mistake, is to neglect our emotions as we worship God. It would be easy after making the first point, you know, to say, feelings don't matter at all in this. I don't need to consider my feelings. I'm just going to uh, shove them down in this box and put them over in this dark corner and hope they don't ever come out and show me what's going on underneath. But has anyone ever told you to disciple your feelings? I think in a lot of discipleship contexts, I hear lots of people talk about discipleship. We talk about discipling the mind, putting scripture in there, getting this linear thought, doing the apologetics, knowing the answers, because God made our minds. We're to renew our minds. But have you ever discipled your emotions? God made your emotions too. Jesus had emotions. Our emotions are broken by sin, just like our minds are broken by sin. But the answer to that is not to, to shove them in the corner and hope they don't ever come out in some scary way. It's to disciple them. And there's no greater tool, I think, for discipling your emotions than music. One of the greatest gifts that God has given us in this endeavor to disciple our emotions is music. In his wonderful creativity, he made music to resonate with our souls, to connect with our emotions, to reverberate in our minds. He gave us music as a gift. And it's a tool that we can use and we should use to lead, instruct, and disciple our emotions. 
So rather than shutting off our emotions, the spiritual discipline of worship gives us a healthy way of expressing and processing and discipling every kind of emotion. Look through the Psalms. You will find every kind of emotion in there. And you'll find the psalmist discipling his emotions to love what's true. So worship is discipline and devotion. We choose to worship regardless of emotion, but we can't neglect our emotions as we worship God either. We disciple them to find pleasure in what's good and what's true and what's beautiful. So we've talked about the nature of worship. We're going to talk about application here, but I just want to take this moment to remind you the purpose of worship, just like the purpose of all the disciplines we're talking about, the purpose of worship is that we would grow in godliness, that we would resist Satan, resist the world, resist the flesh, and put ourselves in position to receive God's presence, his power, his blessing. You remember the the restaurant booth illustration, right? Worship is a way that we approach the presence of God like we do maybe with a spouse at a restaurant booth. So let's talk about some practical applications for worship. I want us to think first about public worship. Brenda mentioned some of these last week. She stole my thunder, but uh, I think it's good to hear them again. So repetition is good. So we're thinking about public and private worship. Think about application for public worship. We've talked about why it's important, why we need to do it, how it shapes us, but now let's talk about how do we approach it in a way that can help us uh, seek God, approach God so that he can shape, shape us. A few things to think about. The first thing I would say is do what you need to do to get sleep the night before, right? I know Saturday nights, like if there's a night we're gonna stay up late and do something fun, it's probably gonna be Saturday night. But think about what do I need to do to make sure I get enough sleep tonight so that I can be engaged at church tomorrow? Remember, you're a body and a soul. Your soul can't be fully ready to worship if your body's not ready to worship. So make sure you get enough sleep the night before. Second thing Take some time to pray before public worship. So Brenda's talked about making sure you come early, get in here, and say a prayer. I would say that's great. One of the things that my wife and I do is we will pray Saturday night. So Saturday night, as we're getting ready for bed, uh, we'll pray for the next morning, and we'll pray for Terry. We'll ask that God would give Terry wisdom and courage that Terry would speak the truth with conviction. We pray for Rodney and the worship team. Pray that God would help them to be able to move past just playing notes and melodies and harmonies and rhythms that they would be able to get to a place where they can worship together and lead us in worship. Pray that God would help us to worship in spirit and truth. We pray that God would give us ears that are ready to hear so we can respond in obedience. We pray for the the super church people who are gonna be teaching our son. People in the nursery are gonna be taking care of our kids. Just taking some time, even the night before, honoring what what God has ordained for Sunday morning worship and praying for it in advance. That's something you can do. Arrive early. So Brenda said her goal to arrive early was kind of thwarted this morning because of the frozen toilet. Mine was as well because of children. Uh, We try to get here at nine. We make it our goal. We're gonna get here at nine. We're gonna get the kids checked in and we're gonna be in here at 9.10. I think I got in here at 9.13 this morning. So I made it before it started. Uh, So there's going to be stuff that comes up. But I would say in generally, try to get here in time that you can get into the sanctuary, be prepared, and set aside distractions. So think about turn your phone off, sitting where you need to sit to be able to focus, 
bringing in your journal. There are listening guides. I don't know if you know this, listening guide. Sherry creates the listening guide for the youth. It's out there on that uh, information holder, but I know adults who grab that as well because it helps them kind of track with what they're doing. And then last thing I would say is just revisit the sermon material throughout the week and, and think about application. So doing the devotionals, talking about it in a small group, those are all good ways to take what we talk about on Sunday mornings and public worship and apply them to our lives. So let's talk about, last thing here, a few things for application of private worship. I would say keep practicing all the other spiritual disciplines that we're talking about, but just slow down a little bit and take a little bit of time to respond to God. So Brenda talked about the end, that meditation piece is, is so important. That's where we really focus on and respond to God. The problem is sometimes that, that takes time and that takes effort, uh, but it's important, right? If we want to get to worship, we can't just rush thing too th- through things too quickly. Second thing I would say is invite and give, give space for the Spirit to speak in truth. So I would say if you're, if you're having a devotional time in the morning, you're getting your Bible intake in, that's good. I would say if you're not inviting the Spirit to be a part of that process, like intentionally, purposefully inviting Him to be a part of that process, that that would be something that I would encourage you to start implementing. We've talked about before just a very simple way you can do that. You sit down with the Bible and you say, Holy Spirit, I need your help to understand what God has said. Would you illuminate the scriptures to me? Would you help me to understand them, to see how they apply to my life? And then would you give me the power to actually live them out as I go? Would you empty me of myself? Fill me with your presence and power. I need your help. Third, I would say explore general and particular expressions. I'm a very uh, logical, linear person. I would prefer to sit down with my Bible and read through a passage and dissect it and, and understand it. Uh, my wife, she will do that, but she would also love to go on a hike and uh, look at everything that God has made, and she like kind of automatically goes to worship. When I go on a hike, I want to get to the top so I can turn around and come back, and she likes to take her time and worship. My son is kind of the same way. So think about how God has wired you, meditation mapping. You know, that's another way. If, you're, if your brain's wired more creatively, that may be a way for you to connect with God. So, so think about those things. And, um, and practice the things you connect with, but I also say lean into your weaknesses. So one of the things I'm trying to train myself to do, my son loves animals. The other day, he came up to me. He said, Dad, you're never going to believe what I learned today. I said, what? He said, platypuses, they find their food with electricity. And I said, what? He said, when they dive under the water, they close their ears and their eyes and their nose. They can't hear anything, see anything, smell anything, but they use electrolocation through their bills. And when their prey move their muscles, they set off the, their, their synapses in their muscles to create these little electrical charges, and they can find them using electricity, and they eat them. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. Uh, but what I said was, wow, isn't God creative? Right, can we use general revelation to get to worship? And I'm not naturally wired that way. I'm like, oh, that's cool, move on. But I, I, I want to train myself to have God in the forefront of my mind. So practicing things, even when you're not naturally geared that way, giving God praise through every area of your life. Uh, last thing I would say um, is to 
to um, think about spending maybe a quiet time where all you do is worship. I went to a conference, um, I don't know, uh, several years ago, collegiate ministry conference, collegiate ministry people sitting around the table. We were going to spend time praying together. And the guy who was leading it, an old wise guy that I respect, he said, okay, we're going to pray for the next 15 minutes. You don't get to ask for anything. You don't get to ask for anything. All you got to do is you get to thank God and get to worship God. And you should have heard us stutter around the table <laughs> trying to, we would catch ourselves. We, we start to ask for something. Oh, I can't do that. Back up. All I can do is thank God. All I can do is worship God. And I learned a lot about myself from that. How much I, I just go quickly to God, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. But how often do I take time to just thank God for who he is, what he's provided, and worship him? So I challenge you, you could do that through a prayer time, just say, I'm not gonna ask for anything this morning. I'm just gonna thank God, praise God. And if you're like, oh, I don't know what to thank God or praise God for, a really helpful thing to do, you could open up to a psalm and just read through a psalm and every time you feel, find a character trait of God revealed or an activity of God revealed, you just stop and you thank God for that. And you move on and you read through a psalm just doing that. So that's the way I think you can kind of lead your heart to worship as well. Okay, I know there's a lot. Uh, those are some applications for public and private worship. We do have about five minutes left. If you have any questions you want to ask, material we've covered today, Either Brenda or I give you space to ask a question.